You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show. And now your host, John Bush. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Live Free Now show, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. I want to thank you for tuning in to the program today. I'm your host, John Bush, and we are going to be talking to you about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency today. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I hope that you enjoy this breakdown. We're specifically going to be talking about the price of Bitcoin and the price of other cryptocurrencies and how they get that price and why I believe cryptocurrency is valuable. And I'm going to share also how the market believes that cryptocurrency is valuable. And yeah, we're going to break it all down. I want to invite you to subscribe to the podcast at livefreenow.show, livefreenow.show, where you can find all the previous episodes, where you can subscribe at the various little channels we got going here, and you can participate in the evolution. So I've been into Bitcoin for quite some time. Uh, since 2012, really, 2012, 2013. And I've learned a whole lot about it and done a lot of promotion about cryptocurrency. Uh, in fact, my family at one point back in 2014 or so, we traveled the country using cryptocurrency only to put the ecosystem to the test. We did multiple different tours. We called them unconventional living tours. Started off in our minivan. Then we were in a converted school bus, called it the Bitcoin.com bus. And uh, we visited local meetups. We visited stores and restaurants that were accepting cryptocurrency. We encouraged stores and places that weren't accepting cryptocurrency to, to get onboarded into the Bitcoin world. And a lot has changed since then. A lot has changed with Bitcoin and the value proposition that Bitcoin has to offer. So we're going to break all that stuff down. I also want to encourage you, if you are interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and you don't know where to start, you can go over to sovbtc.com, http colon forward slash forward slash sovbtc.com. And uh, I do one-on-one -on -one crypto consultations. So I could help you get set up with a wallet, help you make sure that it's all safe and secure and all that, all that good stuff. So check that out, sovbtc.com. So another thing we're going to talk about, and we'll get right into that, is value and price in general, right? A lot of people come out and say, well, Bitcoin can't possibly have value and it's all just a bubble and it's all just hocus pocus. But, you know, individual complainers and individual pundits, they don't determine the value of Bitcoin. The market determines the value of Bitcoin, right? Cryptocurrencies are determined uh, the value of different assets and commodities and goods and services is determined by the market, specifically when there is a match between buyers and sellers. Whenever there's something that lines up between buyers and sellers, when they can agree on a price, that's what determines the price. So before we get down into it, let's let's talk a little bit about how value is determined. There's multiple different theories of value. I happen to subscribe to the subjective theory of value. 
that is put out by the Austrians and the Austrian School of Economics, right? The subjective theory of value holds that all value is subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder. It's the people that are participating in a market exchange or a transaction that determine the value of a good or commodity or service, right? There's other theories like the cost theory of value. Something has value based on the pieces and components that went into it. That's what I would call the wholesale costs or the cost of goods sold, essentially. Uh, there's people that believe in the labor theory of value. This was like a Marxist thing that something is determined by the labor and energy that goes into it, right? This doesn't account for that subjectivity, that uh, connection, that agreement between the buyer and seller, right? And we're going to break down specifically, we're going to look at some charts. We're going to learn about candlesticks and how to read charts and assets here in a second. But I subscribe to the subjective theory of value. And I want to share why Bitcoin has value and why Bitcoin has value in the marketplace. So early on, Bitcoin had value to had value to very few people, right? It was the cypherpunks and the crypto anarchists. And shortly thereafter, it was libertarians that were like, wow, this could really disrupt central banking. Come to find out that central banks are actually going to be issuing central bank digital currencies using blockchain technology, but there's a difference between a decentralized blockchain and a centralized blockchain. But early on, it was like, what is Bitcoin going to be valued? Bitcoin came about, it was the idea of a person or a group of people named Satoshi Nakamoto. And in 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto released a white paper onto the world. I have that pulled up right here. You can check it out. Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And as we'll talk about here shortly, Bitcoin is no longer very functional as a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Uh, it's actually pretty terrible as peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. Bitcoin cash, in my opinion, is better for peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash, but the Bitcoin value proposition has changed. That's, that's something that's definitely important. This white paper came out in 2008 and then in January of 2009, I believe early 2009 is when the cryptocurrency was launched. People started mining all that. Let's talk a little bit about what Bitcoin is real quick for those that aren't familiar. Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer -peer digital cryptocurrency. It uses cryptography and mathematical functions to verify the transactions that take place on the network and to ensure that the cryptocurrency, that the Bitcoin tokens are not replicated or duplicated or forged, which we will talk about in a sec being a very important um, element of good sound money, right? And so it came out on the scene. The big technology behind Bitcoin is the blockchain, which is a distributed decentralized ledger. Okay, so all, here's this is one of the reasons why Bitcoin has value to many people. One of the big problems throughout history was ensuring information is true and valid. And oftentimes institutions like banks or governments or companies, especially financial institutions, they would maintain a ledger. And this ledger indicated who has what money, when they traded it, transacted it, right? And this is how banks started off. Early on, you had gold and silver. Uh, this was well, there was things before that like barter and shells and other 
goods, right, that were traded as commodity money. But people quickly found that precious metals have all sorts of desirable properties when it comes to money. And people were trading with silver and gold. But for someone to travel a great distance or to go into a market to make a large purchase, it's not very practical to carry a whole bunch of gold. So that's where many early banks sprung up. And they said, you can put your gold in my vault and I'll issue these paper notes. This is how paper money came about, right? And those banks kept ledgers. But the problem is you had to trust the bank in order to maintain an accurate ledger and come to find out fractional reserve banking, you know, its early roots. We have fractional reserve banking right now, the Federal Reserve and all the banks. They only have to have one. There's a one to 10 ratio, meaning they have to have one unit on deposit and then they can lend out nine more units. Totally crazy. Creates massive inflation, maybe even 10 more units. But early on, the banks started kind of sleazing and scamming, and they said they had X amount of gold on deposit, but really they had less than that, and they would issue more paper notes. And so there's this problem. We have to trust a third party in order to maintain this ledger. Well, one of the big innovations that Satoshi Nakamoto created was this distributed peer-to-peer -peer public ledger that's verifiable and agreed upon by all the parties that are hosting this ledger. We call those nodes. It's the Bitcoin blockchain, which has the history of all the transactions. It says who owns what, who sent this and that, when and where, who they sent it to, to whom and what address, right? And that's distributed in all these little nodes. So that was one of the big innovations. So to start off, one of the main reasons why Bitcoin has value is because it enables people to exchange money or currency or energy or value or information really is what it is at the end of the day, information without having to trust a third party. And in a day where many people have very little trust in institutions, that's actually a very valuable thing. So I think that was one of the original value propositions when it came on the scene. People are like, wow, a trustless mechanism for the global trade of value, the global exchange of value. This is pretty cool. This is a pretty big deal. But early on, not many people knew what the heck Bitcoin was. And it was a very small group of people that were actually messing with it. It was mainly like computer nerds and techno geeks that were messing with it. Early on, you could mine 50 Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin mining is someone running a computer. When I first learned about Bitcoin, you could still mine Bitcoin on a laptop. But a big lesson that I had my ex-wife was like, hey, my good friend is telling me that we should mine Bitcoin. It's this computer money. It's going to be a big deal. It's decentralized. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've heard about Bitcoin, but I don't want to start mining or do anything with it until I learn more about it. And then I just never really got around to it until a couple of years later. But that was when you could mine Bitcoin and it would pop out 50 Bitcoin for every block that was solved. And there were very few people that were mining Bitcoin. But just going to throw that out there. So mining is running a computer that verifies the transactions on the network to make sure that it's a good, authentic, legitimate transaction. And they do that by scanning and checking the history of the blockchain. Okay. So Bitcoin are generated. Every block that gets added to the blockchain, this distributed decentralized public ledger, you're rewarded with Bitcoin for running that computer. Nowadays, it's ASIC chips, application-specific integrated circuits that run the SHA-256 algorithm very strong supercomputers, a whole decentralized network of supercomputers that do this. And back in the day when Bitcoin first started, every block that got solved, 50 Bitcoin were generated. 
So people were just collecting all these Bitcoin, trading them, sending them to one another. It was like kind of like a novelty thing, right? Bitcoin didn't really even have a dollar value. There wasn't a value. No one really determined what it was until allegedly, apparently, the first Bitcoin transaction was somebody that bought pizza with Bitcoin. Now, get a load of this. Somebody in 2010 paid 10,000 Bitcoins for pizza. Back in February 10th, 2021, that was worth $446 million. 10,000 Bitcoins for a pizza. That would have gave each Bitcoin a value of a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of a penny. So that's pretty cool. And it's like there's something called a, a price determination, right? When you put a new good, a new service, a new commodity into a marketplace, it takes a little while to discover the price. Price discovery is what I meant to say. And so early on, people are like, well, what the heck's it worth? Okay, well, maybe 10,000 Bitcoin is worth a pizza, okay? And for the longest time, Bitcoin didn't have parity even with $1. It was worth less than a dollar. But on a particular day, I wonder what day it was. When did Bitcoin achieve dollar parity? Bitcoin started to gain value. And on May 22nd, 2010, Bitcoin was worth one. When did Bitcoin reach? On February 9th, 2011, Bitcoin reached $1. So early on, there was these different little exchanges where people exchange fiat money for Bitcoin, and eventually the price reached a dollar. Now, I'll tell you what, one of the things that early on drove the price of Bitcoin was folks buying illicit goods on Silk Road Marketplace. Shout out Ross Ulbricht, who unfortunately is serving multiple life sentences for the mere act, the nonviolent act, no victim, victimless act of creating a website. People were using Bitcoin, which early on everyone thought it was anonymous or at least pseudonymous. But as we would learn, the federal government, the FBI, the Department of Justice, even the NSA got involved where they were able to track and trace uh, the cryptocurrency transactions, people's IP addresses and all that stuff. But that was something that was giving Bitcoin utility, giving it value, giving it, making it so it had a function. People could buy illicit goods on this website. In my opinion, as an anarchist, as a voluntarist, more power to them. Another thing early on that gave Bitcoin value was WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, they lost the ability to accept credit card donations and PayPal donations. And they had a lot of money needed to maintain their servers and all the private acts that Julian Assange was doing. So they're like, hey, we can no longer do credit cards and PayPal and all that stuff. So we're going to start accepting Bitcoin. So now people that wanted to donate to support the cause of transparency, they would go buy Bitcoin. Right now, Bitcoin's starting to get utility because the cool thing about Bitcoin, another reason why it has value is because Bitcoin is non-stoppable, essentially. Bitcoin can't be shut down. You can't have an account shut down. Right. That's one of the reasons why it has value to me. I recently had my checking account at Frost Bank shut down. They gave me to the end of this month. Thankfully, I already have another one set up, but almost ran into some problems with them because I sell Kratom and CBD with my business mybravebotanicals.com, which you can go to and pay with Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Dash, Monero, other currencies. Uh, because I sell these, these goods that are legal, but the gov federal government doesn't like them, Frost Bank shut my account down. And I told the woman, the branch manager down at the downtown branch, I said, you know, this is the reason why Bitcoin's so special because there's not a downtown branch manager that could shut me down, right? And so people find that to be valuable. But up until this point, now we're in 2011, 2012, right? 
Bitcoin isn't hasn't broken into the mainstream. It hasn't um, been adopted, widely adopted. I would argue that it's still really in early adopt adoption phases. Um, it still hasn't exploded into mainstream acceptance. It's now that mainstream people have heard of it, but not everyone has it, but it's starting to puncture in. And we're going to get a little bit further in the, in the narrative, and I'm really going to break down why Bitcoin is 56,000 or 58,000, however much it is today. Uh, we got to fast forward quite a bit. Let me hit up some comments real quick. I want to thank everyone that's tuned in live watching on Facebook, YouTube, or Float, or DLive as well. And uh, thank you to those that are watching on the podcast after the fact. I see some questions pouring in. Stephanie Romero says, how do you feel about Monero? Monero is a privacy coin, meaning all of the transactions, who has what money, when, where, how, who, and when, it's all obscured. It's obfuscated. So I think there's immense value in that. Monero is some of the money that gets used on the deep web, right? Bitcoin has a transparent blockchain. Everyone can see the transactions that take place. And if someone can tie someone's identity, their person, to a Bitcoin address, then you can see how much crypto they have. There's ways around that. For example, every time you do a transaction, you're encouraged to use a new public address. Public addresses like your account number, a Bitcoin wallet can create an infinite number of public addresses. But at the end of the day, the transactions and the amounts of Bitcoin are completely transparent. There's other cryptocurrencies like Zcash or Monero that obscure that and people find value in that. Again, we're talking about subjective value, subjective theory of value. Different individuals, different groups, they find value in different things for different reasons, right? And when we put a cryptocurrency or a product like Kratom, for example, into the marketplace or a cell phone, the market determines the value, right? The free market, ideally it's as free as possible. People exchanging a buyer and a seller, someone that has a good to offer, someone that wants a good, they come in and there was a relationship between them. And when they agree on something, that's how we get the price. That's how price is discovered. And for many commodities, goods and services and cryptocurrencies, that that is a moving marker. The price of something is moving. I'm really going to get into detail. So stick with us because I'm going to show you these candlesticks and talk about how price discovery, it's an ongoing battle between the buyers and sellers. I'm going to break that down for you. It's some stuff that I've been breaking down for my son. He's super interested in cryptocurrency and trading as well. Uh, Todd Mill says, what do you make of the arrest of the six people for unlicensed money transfer in New Hampshire? Well, you know, I um, am close friends with Ian Freeman. I've known him for, I don't know, a decade now. And I think it's really unfortunate. For those of you that aren't familiar, there are some folks in Keene, New Hampshire. They operate these churches a church of the Shire, whatever they're called. There's a few different churches. And as part of their ministry, they were selling Bitcoin on localbitcoins.com. And they also had Bitcoin vending machines set up. There's part of the money, the Bank Secrecy Act, right? The government expects if you're going to run a business, money service business, an MSB, then you need to get a money transmitter license. And if you have a money transmitter license, then you necessarily have to comply with the Bank Secrecy Act, which requires know your customer anti-money laundering checks and balances in place. Specifically, when you go to Coinbase, for example, or most Bitcoin ATMs, they require you to scan a driver's license or passport so they can cross-reference your identity with the anti-terror or criminal database to make sure that you're not potentially doing money laundering. Of course, that's what they say it's for, but in, the, in reality, it's for control and they want to tax everyone and get all the money where they think they're owed this money. Well, I don't know if they were trying to say that they're not a business because it's a church. 
whatever their goal was there, the federal government, the FBI, the Department of Treasury did a raid on some of the places where the ATMs were on Ian Freeman's home in Keene, and they were arrested. Some of the people have been released on bond under the condition that they don't access computers, all sorts of stuff. Uh, Ian Freeman is set to have a hearing tomorrow, I think, to see the terms of his release bond or if he's going to be imprisoned. So I think that's really unfortunate. I'm an anarchist, a voluntarist, no victim, no crime. And a lot of the folks in Keene, New Hampshire, Ian Freeman, especially of the Free Talk Live program, they're pretty bold in their activism and more power to them. But with that bold activism comes immense risk. And it's unfortunate that uh, the the federal police went ahead and cracked down, unfortunately. Injustice Hurley says, oh shit, John, it can be shut down. Why are you guys still pushing crypto so much? We need to leave the digital unicorn dream. There's such better answers. Share your answers with me then, Injustice Hurley, because I certainly appreciate cryptocurrency. As I shared with you, I have value in cryptocurrency. I just got my bank account shut down and I'm able to still accept cryptocurrency. Thankfully, the e-check's still going. I had to switch banks, but I find immense value in cryptocurrency all day long. Uh, you can call it a digital unicorn if you want, but really it's money that's liberating many people and giving people the opportunity to exist outside of the system. So more power, more power to them. Again, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, this is the Live Free Now show, livefreenow.show. We are going to get back to it on why cryptocurrency has value indeed. Okay, so... The price of Bitcoin early on, it hadn't punctured through mainstream consciousness. There were people that found value in it because it was decentralized, because it was peer-to-peer, -peer, because people, uh, it couldn't be shut down. You can, you can, I can accept Bitcoin for Kratom and CBD, all that stuff, and the banks can't say, no, you can't. But as more and more people became aware of Bitcoin, it became more widely acceptable and the price began to rise. And along comes something called Mount Gox, right? The Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. This guy, Mark Carpellis, bought this Magic Exchange. And for the first time, there was a big exchange that people could do business with. Early on, there were pioneers like Charlie Shrem, Eric Voorhees. These guys did Bit Instant. Um, Charlie Shrem got in trouble for money laundering and all these charges, similar stuff with Ian Freeman and all these guys. It did turn out apparently because according to some of his text messages, he knowingly was selling Bitcoin to someone that was using it on the Silk Road, a drug dealer or purchaser on the Silk Road. That's really unfortunate, but there was still mass scrutiny um, from all sorts of federal regulators because early on, the federal government didn't know what to do with Bitcoin. They're like, holy crap, what is this? How do we regulate this? How do we try to control it? So they're early pioneers that took immense risk, right? But one of the reasons why Bitcoin's price couldn't gain is because there wasn't a lot of liquidity in the marketplace. And as we'll come to find out with these different cryptocurrencies, liquidity and access to capital and exchanging cryptocurrency for fiat is extremely important in order for a price to grow. It's like, yeah, you can stay within the Bitcoin world, which eventually is what our hope is that people stop using fiat and start using crypto. You know, I was a lot more optimistic early on about cryptocurrency. I'll share why some of that optimism went away, specifically with Bitcoin. But uh, I, I do think that at least for a section of the public, our freedom cell community, our agorist community, we can decouple away from the dollars. It's just a process. Maybe it'll take generations. I don't know, but I'm in this for the long haul. But along came Mt. Gox, which now had a lot of liquidity and a it was able to scale the, the transfer of 
US dollars and fiat currencies for Bitcoin. This is what drove the price all the way up to 1,200. Along the way, there's firms, Microsoft got involved, Overstock.com, for example. There was a lot of different institutions that started accepting cryptocurrency. The price started going up, right? And it shot all the way up to like 1,100, $1,000 before completely collapsing and crashing. Come to find out, Mt. Gox had a huge hack. Maybe it wasn't a hack, maybe it was total thievery, but it, turned out that they were more than likely operating a Ponzi scheme. They were taking in people's fiat currency, promising to sell Bitcoin. In reality, they didn't have that Bitcoin available. They blamed it on a hack, total nightmare. And the price of Bitcoin came crashing down, uh, lost immense value, 70, 80, 90%. Now the media spun up a bunch of BS at this time saying, Bitcoin's dead, Bitcoin's dead. Not truly understanding that because one exchange went down, right? Because of some hairy fairy stuff, that doesn't mean that Bitcoin is dead, right? A lot of folks really had difficulty grasping this new concept of something that's not owned by anyone, but at the same time, anyone can own it, right? This decentralized phenomenon, this leaderless phenomenon, no CEO, no board of directors, no com company to sue. That really is the beauty of a decentralized cryptocurrency. For example, Ripple, XRP, that's a company. They issued this XRP token. The SEC is suing them, saying that they're doing securities without a license, right? That caused a dramatic fall in the price of Ripple, which is like a banker coin that helps to improve the transfer money from ATMs and banks and all sorts of stuff and back-end bank transfers. But the price came down a whole lot, and that's because there's a corporation that you can sue, you can squeeze, you can put pressure on. But with Bitcoin, that doesn't exist. It's a very beautiful thing. And so the price most certainly recovered, right? Now let's fast forward. Bitcoin is becoming more mainstream. Bitcoin is becoming used a lot more. And we'll fast forward to today. There's all sorts of like, there's great, there's this uh, TradingView website, which I'm going to talk about here in a sec. Uh, and they have this really cool chart here. Let me just show it to you. I wanted to use this as a tool for our for our conversation here. I'll link this in the show notes for the podcast audience. But there's just too many damn things. It's too thorough. Like it goes throughout the entire history. Silk Road gets seized October 2013. Bitcoin price takes a tumble. It's like there's so many things. BitPay, there's a halving that takes place. There's so many things on here. It just kind of makes it difficult to follow all of the different events, but I'll link to it. But let's go ahead and fast forward. Okay, so why is Bitcoin valuable right now? Why is Bitcoin valuable today? Well, Bitcoin, the value proposition changed. Originally, people were excited about having this trustless, decentralized, peer-to-peer -peer digital cash, right? But there was a problem with that. And that problem is that Bitcoin is terrible, terrible, terrible digital cash. We'll talk about that. But Bitcoin has gained immense value as of late as a digital gold of sorts, as a store of value, right? So we started off early on talking about why things have value, subjective theory of value. Things are valuable to different people for different reasons. Well, in my opinion, what's responsible for the mass run up in price from 4,000 to 10,000 to 27,000 to 50,000 to 60,000, just over 60,000 is the all-time high, is institutional money is now flooding into Bitcoin, right? And institutional money and big money and hedge funds and large corporations that have hundreds of millions of dollars in their treasury, right? And they're like their savings account and their kitty, 
they are concerned about inflation and about the United States government and other central banks and governments debasing their currency, inflating the currency, which brings us to a very unique, valuable aspect of Bitcoin and that it's is that it has a fixed supply. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin in existence. Right now, there's over 18 and a half million. I'm seeing these comments here. I'm going to respond to some injustices Injustice Hurley stuff about Bitcoin and transhumanism and all this stuff. Um, and you're free to think whatever you want and you don't have to participate in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. And that's your right. But I'll, I'll respond to that here in a second. But Bitcoin has a fixed supply, which is another unique innovation. There only will ever be 21 million. Originally, every block, 50 Bitcoin were created and generated. That's how Bitcoin are mined or minted, right? And then every four years, that block reward is halved, okay? The most recent halving just took place in 2020. It's not every four years. It's approximately every four years. It's every certain number of blocks that take place in the blockchain. And so just in 2020, the block reward is now 6.25, okay? So there's a fixed inflation rate that's predictable. Prediction's good for money. It's good for entrepreneurs to have a predictable rate of inflation, okay? When it comes to fiat currencies, the US dollar, for example, there is no... There's no way to know how much inflation is going to happen, okay? And with the COVID-19 crisis, pandemic, plandemic, scamdemic that's taken place, the federal government, the Department of Treasury and the United States Federal Reserve Bank, the central bank, private bank, has taken to inflating the currency immensely, right? Remember the bailouts back in 2007, 2008? That was like $400 billion or $500 billion. Everyone thought that was crazy. Well, Biden just signed this $1.9 trillion stimulus package, right? Trump signed a huge amount of it was like $900 billion or $1.2 trillion, something crazy like that. But all the while, the Federal Reserve discount window, which is when the Federal Reserve directly bails out and opens up dollars and they inject dollars into big banks, big commercial banks, they have been doling out trillions upon trillions upon trillions. And the the number of dollars on the scene is completely exponential and growing immensely, which leads to inflation, right? The layman thinks inflation is an increase in prices. In reality, inflation is an increase in the money supply. And the result of that is an increase in prices because the law of supply and demand kicks in. The greater of a supply that you have, the less valuable something is. So literally, if you have $100,000 in your savings account, and the federal government is pumping out trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars, you're losing purchasing power with that, right? Now, early on, Austrian economists and a lot of folks knew about that, but not, not the general public did. It wasn't such a crisis of an issue. Everyone could see the writing on the wall. I mean, anyone that has half a brain should see what's taking place here. Well, because it's accelerated the printing press, now we have really smart money, hedge money, billionaires, billion billion-dollar institutions, Large corporations like Tesla, for example, right? And this grayscale trust, all these big trusts are starting to pump a lot of money into Bitcoin. So here's what takes place back to the law of supply and demand. When you have a limited supply of something, 18 and a half million Bitcoin, most of which are totally frozen up and not moving and not liquid in exchanges, right? When you have a limited supply of something and you have a huge demand, a phenomenon takes place where there's more people competing. There's more buyers that are competing for the attention of the sellers. The price goes up. That's how prices change. We're going to get down into this even more here in a second. 
And so the price has gone up immensely because there is big money competing for a very finite quantity of Bitcoin. And the value proposition now has changed from that of it's really cool, decentralized, trustless money. We don't need to rely on a third party. Uh, the government can't shut down your account, right? Now they can lean on you, they can pressure you, they can bring you before a judge and try to coerce you. But at the end of the day, you don't have to give up your seed, you don't have to give up your encryption password, right? That was one of the value propositions early on, the ability to send money instantly with little to no fee. We'll talk about how that's changed. Now the value proposition and what's caused a dramatic increase in the price is that folks are concerned about inflation and dollar debasement and Bitcoin is an example of a finite supply of money. It has great properties of money, greater properties than gold even, because gold is difficult to transfer. There's a, there's some, I, I do cryptocurrency consultation I was talking about. There's a client I worked with recently that wants to invest and they're concerned about putting a bunch of money in gold because they, are, they travel a lot and they move a lot and having to hunk around a safe with a bunch of gold isn't really the best idea, right? That's not very safe, that would leave you vulnerable. Instead, you can invest in these digital assets, Bitcoin, and you can take it wherever the hell you want on a paper wallet. You can have a brain wallet that you remember. You can write down your seed phrase and you can have that currency that you own. No one else controls and you can move it wherever you like. And it turns out, you know, there's a lot of haters on Bitcoin. But as I said, the market speaks, right? The market knows more than me. The market knows more than the haters. And Bitcoin has just blown up onto the scene. Check this out. This is a list of all the top assets by market cap. Market cap is when you take the units of something and you multiply it by the price of each unit. So if with stocks, you take the stock, the price of a stock, and you multiply it by the number of stocks in circulation, you get the market cap, which is a great determinant of the overall value of that particular asset. And as you can see from this chart, gold is number one at 11 trillion. Now on its share, many people are thinking it's possible that Bitcoin can overtake this market cap, which means the price of Bitcoin would 10x from around 56,000 to 560,000, right? So we have gold at 11 trillion, we have Apple at 2 trillion, Saudi Aramco, it's probably an oil company, Microsoft, Amazon, Silver, Google, and Bitcoin is right here. Number eight, recently passed up Tesla. The overall market cap of Bitcoin is 1.095 trillion. That's a really big deal. I remember when it reached a billion. Absolutely insane. Absolutely crazy. And what's driving up the price, let's go check out the price. I like a website called coingecko.com. This is where I get a lot of information on Bitcoin and the different prices. Oh, it's up to 58,900. It's up uh, today, three and a half percent. So the overall market cap for Bitcoin is 1.092 trillion. And again, you get that price by multiplying the number of units in circulation times the price of each unit. So you get the overall market cap. That's just the market cap of Bitcoin. When you bring in the market cap of all cryptocurrencies altogether, it's 1.84 trillion, which would put it uh, as the fourth most valuable asset in the world. Now, I want to point out again, what, what's driving all this price is all of these big, these big hedge funds and all of this smart money. Where is that? This is a list of Bitcoin treasuries. These are corporations, hedge funds, and big companies that have Bitcoin in their holdings. And as you can see, MicroStrategy is number one. They have 91,326 Bitcoin, which is valued at 5.35 billion. Tesla, just behind them, 
has 48,000 Bitcoin, 2.58 billion. Square, which many people are familiar with, they have 8,000 Bitcoin or 470 million. So as you can see, there's all sorts of different companies now and holdings and hedge funds that are holding on to Bitcoin because they don't want to see their money and the money that they've gained in previous years go down the toilet. That's what's driving the value of Bitcoin, driving the price increase. Again, we have a finite supply of something. We have a lot of competition for that finite supply. These miners and these big mining conglomerations and mining pools, they have relationships with Coinbase, with PayPal, with Square, with MicroStrategy, to where a lot of these larger firms get first dibs on that cryptocurrency. So as the Bitcoin is generated, oftentimes it's already spoken for, which makes an even scarcer market for the retail investors that are trying to buy on Coinbase or buy at the ATM, so on and so forth. The price is only going to continue to go up. The federal government is only going to continue to debase the currency, right? All right, so let me... Um, let me respond to old Injustice Hurley here, and then I want to talk about uh, a visualization of prices. We're going to talk about candlesticks and how the prices change. And then I'm going to talk about Bitcoin. It used to be digital electronic peer-to-peer -peer cash. Uh, now it's not. Now it's more of a digital gold. And that's unfortunate because I think if it hadn't have had these scaling issues, we'll break it down, then the price could be even more valuable right now. I'll talk about BCH, Bitcoin Cash, why I think it's a good alternative but we do have some detractors and that's always great so what do we got here injustice hurley i was there from mount gox and cryptopia bullshit okay that's great have you seen Catherine austin fitz's building the bitcoin prison we need to see the crypto scene for what it is playing into the transhumanist agenda so bitcoin so i don't think bitcoin was like created by some new world order proponent uh, I generally think Bitcoin is created by cypherpunks. I think there's a lot of evidence that maybe it was a conglomeration of some Adam Back, for example, and some other crypto cypherpunks. They had this little circle. They were always working on how to make this digital gold, this digital cash. Uh, so that gets that out of the way. I think Bitcoin came onto the scene, a decentralized currency, a decentralized system, right? That can't be shut down in one individual way. A country could say, you can't use Bitcoin in, in the borders of India, right? But people could still disobey and say, uh, yes, we're going to do that anyway, and we're going to hide it from you and obscure it from you, right? But I think governments were caught off guard and were like, what the hell is this cryptocurrency phenomenon? And being the controllers that they are, they say, how do we try to control it, right? So it's a paradox. On the one hand, we have blockchain technology. And to answer your question, no, I haven't seen Catherine Austin Fitz's building the Bitcoin prison, but I'm very familiar with how blockchain technology is being utilized in order to usher in the great reset and technocracy. Earlier, I explained what blockchain technology is, right? This distributed peer-to-peer -peer digital ledger. Well, blockchains can also be centralized and controlled. And what blockchains present is a great efficient way to hold information. And then it also makes it easy and accessible to analyze that information. All that Bitcoin is, is information, right? It's a bunch of ones and zeros. And that information is who has what Bitcoin, who sent what Bitcoin to what address, when, and how much did they send? That's all the information that's on the blockchain, right? Well, other types of information can be stored as well. For example, in Austin, what's it called? MyPass. In Austin, there's a program I've broken all this down on other podcasts, so I'm not getting into the nitty gritty details of how tax-exempt foundations are working 
to usher in the Great Reset, partnering and feeding money to local governments, companies to further their agenda, right? But in Austin, there's this Austin Technology Office, and they're working with the Tax Exempt Foundation on a program called MyPass, which wants to create a digital identity certificate that's blockchain based here in Austin. And they want to roll it out for all of the homeless people in Austin, a huge homeless issue in Austin, homeless folks all over the place because they did away with this camping ban. And uh, it's been quite problematic. And so they want to get all the homeless people to have a digital blockchain ID. And they want to use that ID to track the social services that they've doled out, right? There's all these programs called pay for success and impact investing. They want to do this in education as well. There's something that's all part of the great reset. World Economic Forum's marketing plan for a new world order 2.0, as I like to call it. There's this something called the P20 pipeline, prison to, sorry, not prison, but it might as well be prison, preschool to PhD pipeline, where tax-exempt foundations also invest in preschool institutions, early elementary, middle school, high school, all the way to college. And what they're trying to do is invest for desirable outcomes so they can further expand desirable industries, the fourth industrial revolution, this term that Klaus Schwab came out, it's what the Great Reset's all about. These industries include AI, robotics, drones, okay? And so they want to invest money so that they can have a desirable outcome, the furtherance of these industries, the growth of the workforce. So in 10 to 20 years, they can have people that are filling all of these fourth industrial revolution industries. And they're going to use blockchain-based technology. They're going to use blockchain-based information gathering and analysis in order to determine if these investments have been successful. So when you ask me in Justice Hurley, if I'm familiar with building the Bitcoin prison and all this stuff, yes, I'm very familiar with all the nuts and bolts of it. But here's the paradox right? Just like a gun can be used to coerce someone into getting on a train to Auschwitz, a gun too can be used to overthrow the British Empire and the American Revolution, right? Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and blockchain is a tool, and it is what we make of it. So before you go all defeatist on me and all whiny hiney, and I know the tone that you take, and I know the sentiment that is wholly present within the conspiracy research community, within the Liberty Voluntarius Agorist community. I'm with it. I'm with you. I know where you're coming from. I want to point out that cryptocurrency on the flip side, paradoxically, can also be a very liberating mechanism. For example, when we have an environment where there's social credit scores, where there's a simultaneous effort to create a mark of the beast system where you can only access commerce if you have a certain social credit score, for example, or if you're being a good citizen, or if you've taken your COVID vaccine, right? And they wanna create a cashless society and shut people out. A great solution for that is something like Monero, decentralized private cryptocurrency that cannot be tracked and traced. We know it can't be tracked and traced because even the IRS is offering bounties to the tune of tens, tens of thousands of dollars trying to pay hackers to hack the algorithm that ensures the privacy and the anonymity of the Monero blockchain. So you're coming at me like cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, it's all part of the transhumanist agenda. It's being leveraged for that, but at the same time, it also has the liberating properties that will enable people to share information encrypted. Another great example. Catherine Austin Fitz, I bet her videos get scrubbed from YouTube, a centralized big tech social media service. I bet it's not going to get scrubbed from library, a decentralized blockchain based 
social media service where you can store the same videos that you can on YouTube, but it can't go down. So I hear you, man, but it's all about mindset and it's all about what you choose to focus on. Because if you focus on, oh, Bitcoin's all bad and cryptocurrency is all bad and it's all part of the transhumanist agenda and the new world order is omnipotent. That's what a lot of the stuff that you're saying says to me that you believe that those in control are omnipotent. They're all powerful, but they're not all powerful and they have chinks in their armor. And one of those chinks is the advent of decentralized technologies like cryptocurrency and decentralized blockchain. So that's what I'd like to share on that front. All right, let's get back to it. Thank you, Injustice Hurley, for contributing to the conversation. Okay, so Bitcoin at one point was supposed to be peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash, as we can see from the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. But along the way, it had some scaling issues. And I like to point this out in my consultations because it's extremely important to understand. Somebody's asking, do I think Bitcoin, Ethereum is a good buy? I think Ethereum has a lot of growth. Ethereum is positioning itself. The value that Ethereum has to offer in the marketplace is this decentralized global supercomputer. So you got to ask yourself, what would a decentralized global supercomputer be worth, right? And then we say also have decentralized finance, DeFi, where you can completely replace New York Stock Exchange and trade assets and commodities in addition to having lending and where you can put your money and earn interest. All of this stuff is essentially going to render banks obsolete. The banks are going to fight so hard to, to stay, right? It's like innovate or die. They're trying to innovate with central bank digital currencies, but they can't keep up with the pace of the free market. So I'm hoping that they go by the wayside. So yeah. And Justice Hurley says, watch, check out Allison McDowell. I'm familiar with Allison McDowell and I've researched her work and I've invited her many times to participate in the great reset, the greater reset, our event, our response to the great reset. And she has it in her head, just as you do that all cryptocurrency and all blockchain are bad, but she simultaneously complains of her content and other people's content being censored on YouTube and other centralized services and every time I say, hey, if only there was a decentralized blockchain-based solution that enables us to put up information, to store our research, our content that we want to share with the world, and it's censorless, if only that existed, wouldn't that be a great thing? And she doesn't want to hear it. You don't seem to want to hear it either. That's okay. Yes, I do think Ethereum is a great buy. I think it has the potential to go up 10, 20,000. Right now, it's a little less than 2,000. It's a great opportunity to get involved. Also, all that institutional money that's going into Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency that it's going to go into behind Bitcoin is going to be Ethereum shortly after that. Bonzeru says, I think my currency use will end up having to be based on bartering. And that, you know, a lot of folks are like, well, I'm not going to do Bitcoin. My, I'm going to do gold and guns, right? And it's like, yeah, do that too. No one is saying only invest in cryptocurrency or only hold Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin, it's gold, it's guns, it's grains, it's ammo, it's food production systems, it's bartering, it's resilient networks, right? There's a lot of wealth and value that comes in the human networks that we have. At the end of the day, I think that's what creates the most wealth is the human connection that you have in the human network and the trust that you have built up with other human beings because you can be totally broke and you can still have a healthy wealthy life because you have that connection and that bond right of course money sure as hell makes it a lot easier all right i digress bitcoin originally was supposed to be peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash but bitcoin grew had learned started having some scaling problems okay so along the way each block Remember, it's a, the, there's a distributed public ledger of blocks, a chain of blocks. Those blocks contain the information about who owns what Bitcoin, who sent what Bitcoin, when and where. Each block can only hold one megabyte worth of information. 
So this was no problem. And early on, we we're like, hey, you should set up Bitcoin for your business because you can accept money and value for little to no fee, unlike the credit cards that charge two to three percent. That was the value proposition that I would offer to online stores and to stores in person, right? And that's not the case anymore. And it's because Bitcoin had scaling problems. So when there's more people that are competing to get into the next block, to have their block, their transaction confirmed within the next 10 minutes, there's what's called a transaction fee. So every transaction you send a fee, the fee goes to the miners. Well, it's a beautiful example of the free market in action because as more people want to get into that next block that only has a finite amount of space, a finite amount of transactions that can fit into the next block, they start a bidding more and they bid up the price of that transaction fee. Again, this is there's a finite limited supply. There's a bigger demand. The price goes up. Really beautiful free market, but not good if you're trying to buy a $5 coffee. The price of transaction fees has been upwards of $29, $30, $40. Right now, I think it's anywhere between $8 and $15. And again, there's, a, there's only a certain amount of transactions that can fit on the blockchain, so everybody's competing. Along the way, the Bitcoin community is like, well, what are we going to do? How do we scale Bitcoin so that it can compete with Visa someday? Okay, And very soon, two camps emerged. This was all taking place 2013, 2014, 2015, and beyond. Two camps emerged. One camp was furthered by a group. Blockstream was a corporation that was involved. This was a centralized corporation that had a lot of banking folks. Even uh, Larry Summers, if people are familiar with him, he was one of the architects of the bailouts, former Department of Treasury secretary. He's part of this Blockstream conglomeration. And they're like, how about in order to scale, we create an off-chain transaction channel called the Lightning Network, where people can create these little channels and connections between one another, clear the transaction between them, and then every so often it gets dumped onto the blockchain to rebalance the ledger totals, right? An off-chain transaction. The only problem is this isn't necessarily peer-to-peer -peer because you have to trust the party that you're doing this little channel with, okay? I'm not a fan of it personally. It would help Bitcoin to scale, but not scale in a way that makes more sense, which is the other camp that said, hey, how about we just increase the block from one megabyte to two megabytes? Then we can fit twice as many transactions. We can stay peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. Well, that camp didn't went out in the end. Bitcoin decided that they were going to do this upgrade called segregated witness that would enable these lightning network transactions, which are slowly, 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 but surely coming onto the scene. They're still com complicated and confusing as if Bitcoin wasn't complicated enough. The other camp said, you know what? We think that the best route is to increase the block size. So if you're not going to increase the block size, we're just going to fork away. Another great example of a free market. It'd be great if we could fork away from the United States government and form our own societies. That's essentially what we're trying to do with the Freedom Cell Network, freedomcells.org. But you had the Bitcoin blockchain, a history of transactions. And all of a sudden, people say, we're going to maintain that history of transactions. But we're going to start a new chain of transactions. And that new chain of transactions, everybody that agrees, we're going to increase the block size. We're going to call that Bitcoin Cash. So now we have Bitcoin Cash which I think is like the 10th tenth, uh, tenth highest coin, the 11th highest ranking as far as the market cap goes. It has a $10 billion market cap, way lower than Bitcoin and Ethereum, all those at the top. But Bitcoin's Bitcoin Cash's idea is to stick to Satoshi Nakamoto's original vision of peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. With Bitcoin Cash, for example, my son, 
I do these like micro payments when they do the dishes and do chores sometimes. So it's like, oh yeah, there's a little half of dishes there. Let me throw you a dollar worth of Bitcoin cash or $2 worth of Bitcoin cash. I couldn't do this with Bitcoin because the transaction fee would be $12 to send $2 worth of Bitcoin. It's impossible. But with Bitcoin cash, I can send them $2. And fascinatingly, the transaction fee is like 0. 0.0006 of a dollar. It's not, it's a t small fraction of a penny. That's super cool. So the value proposition changed over time. Originally, Bitcoin had value against subjective value. People are like, Bitcoin doesn't have value. It's not real, right? It's got to be commodity-based money, right? But at the end of the day, it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of value there. The marketplace is expressing value, not to mention that Bitcoin is the largest supercomputer in existence right now. It's this global decentralized supercomputer means of sharing information. Absolutely incredible. Man, the markets are just popping off. I'm seeing all these markets going off and I'm like, wow, I, I wish I would have noticed that little bull flag there um, for some trading. But Bitcoin Cash is digital peer-to-peer -peer cash. You can send a small amount, micropayments. Another great story. Check this out. You know, early on, the value proposition that we were trying to share with Bitcoin back 2013, 2014, it's like, okay, you can send money anywhere in the world for little to no fee, and that's no longer proper. And we also would say Bitcoin is going to bring banking to the unbanked. Bitcoin is going to allow for folks in a small African town that want to send money back to their family in another African town, right? These are places where they make like $2 a day or seven US dollars a week, whatever. They're able to get banking with just a cell phone. They don't have to have access to banking institutions, which are crippled and non-existent in many of these impoverished areas. Well, nowadays you can't do that with Bitcoin because if someone only makes $2 a day, for their wages, two US dollars, the equivalent of two US dollars a day. And in order to send any money or buy some tea or buy some goods or send money back home, you got to pay a $12 transaction fee that just renders it unworkable. But Bitcoin Cash, on the other hand, and other cryptocurrencies that don't have this scaling transaction fee problem, they can in turn go and allow for the unbanked to have value. So there's that. All right, before I finish up. I just want to show you guys some stuff on price because it's a great visual representation. Let me show you. I'm, I'm noticing this right here. So this is Ripple. It's like a banker coin, but there's certain little tells in trading that you can tell that will help show you where the hell's trading view? that will help show you like if it's a good opportunity to buy, if there's going to be breakout. And I just noticed this, this um, flag here. It's not a flag. What is it? A pinnacle or pennant. Oh, my computer's going slow here. Okay, so let me just show you guys some things about price. Hopefully Bitcoin will work. So this is CoinGecko, coingecko.com. It's a great website where you can compare all the different cryptocurrencies off of one another. And I just want to talk a little bit about how prices are determined in the moment. So we can see you go here, you go to trading view, and it allows you to have these little candlesticks here. I'll just give you a quick education on candlesticks, and we'll learn a little something about about Bitcoin. We're going to switch it to a daily chart. Okay, so every single one of these candlesticks, and put me here on screen, every one of these candlesticks represents a period. And right now, because I chose that period, each one of these candlesticks represents one day. Okay, so for folks that, oh, now we have people hating on Bitcoin Cash and hating on my boy Roger Ver. Ah, there's so many haters in the world. 
I don't know how people have time just to like hate on other human beings and hate on other things that are obviously providing value on the, in the marketplace and providing value to people and doing really cool things. Like Bitcoin Cash has Coin Shuffle, a coin join technology that allows you to mix it up and do more anonymous transactions or at least obscure who's sending to who. If anybody values freedom, that's a pretty cool thing. But it's like people are hating on Roger Ver, hating on Bitcoin Cash. I mean, at the end of the day, I think you can measure people's success by how many haters they have. So I'm just throwing that out there. Okay, so each this is this is good information because a lot of people, when they see these charts, they're like, what the hell does that mean? I always see it on Squawk Box and CNNBC, and I'm curious what it means, but this is this is essentially price, right? So each one of these periods represents one day. We can change it to 30 minutes or an hour. If the candlestick is green, it means if for those of you that are watching on the podcast, I invite you to go to coingecko.com as you're watching, assuming you're not driving, you can follow along, you can click trading view and you can pull up these charts and you can see it for yourself, but I'll try to describe it. So it helps as well. So anytime you have a green candlestick, that means that at the beginning of the period, the price was at the bottom of the candlestick and it finished higher at the end of that one day period. Okay. That's a candlestick. These other little things are called wicks. That is means that the price during that period went as low as 43,497 and as high as 54,775. But because the candlestick is red, it means that the price started the day at 54,000 and it ended the day at 49,942. And so I want to show you this because I just want to show and point out that price is nothing but a never ending struggle between buyers and sellers between bulls and bar uh, bulls and bears okay so check this out when the candlestick is green this is something that i teach my kids i'm actually putting together an online course and a paid workshop about bitcoin and stuff and i'm using the lessons that i do with my kids to create content for the lessons that i want to do with adults because bitcoin and cryptocurrency is something that's so damn complex if i can break it down as though i was teaching a first grader and a third grader I think that would be valuable for folks to help them learn, okay? Okay, so whenever the candlestick is green, it means that the buyers were in control of that particular period. Whenever the price goes up, the buyers are in control. Whenever the price goes down, the sellers are in control. This takes place because during a green candlestick, during a bullish period, during a period where the price goes up, the buyers are in control and it's those buyers that are competing to earn the privilege of buying from one of the sellers. Let's flip that on the head. The price goes down when there's more people that are wanting to sell than there are that are wanting to buy. Does that make sense? Let me know if that makes sense in the comments. The price goes up, meaning the buyers are in control, meaning the buyers are now competing for the privilege of doing business with the sellers. That's what causes a price to go up. A price goes down when the sellers are in control and the sellers are competing to sell to the buyers. They're like, I, so imagine there's a fewer, there's more buyers, right? And the buyers are like, hey, I want to buy Bitcoin. I'm really excited about Bitcoin. The price keeps going up. I'll pay 55,000. And these sellers are over here like, oh, that sounds like a pretty good proposition. But there's more buyers. So the next buyer is like, no, 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 no. I'll pay 55,000 and $50. And the other the seller is like, well, this is getting better and better. Maybe we should wait until the price goes up more. And the other seller is like, no, I'll pay 55. Screw it. I'll pay 56,000, right? They're competing. 
on the flip side, when the price is going down, there's more sellers. They're competing. I really got to get, get rid of this Bitcoin. I think the price is going to go down, starting to drop. I heard Janet Yellen say something ridiculous. I got to get rid of this Bitcoin. These buyers are here like, well, I'll buy it for 54,000. This guy's like, I'll sell it for 54,000. No, I'll sell it for 53,000. No, I'll sell it for 52. And the price goes down. And the cool thing about markets, especially when they're free markets and they're un molested by governments is the price can just do this natural, beautiful, spontaneous orders, free flowing to like Jeffrey Tucker always talks about the beauty of prices and marketplaces and spontaneous order. Just freedom is such a beautiful thing when it just comes together in such a harmonious way. <laughs> but that's what that's essentially what's taking place. And that's what price discovery is all about. The price of something changes. It's entirely subjective and it's an agreement between the buyer and the seller. Now, let me point out a few more things for those of you that are interested in cryptocurrency. And then we're going to wrap this up. So there's signals that you can learn. This is called technical analysis. Just going to go over a quick little couple basics. Oh, Mark Van Duzer points out a great point. Thank you, Mark Van Duzer, watching on YouTube. Crypto, just like your bank account, isn't worth anything until it's used to purchase assets. I love that. My boy Grant Cardone of the 10X movement, he's like, the money doesn't mean nothing sitting in your bank account. It's when you use the money, right? Use the money to make more money or to buy more things and to increase your quality of life, your standard of living. So for those of you that are holding on to cryptocurrency, be conscious of that. It's just ones and zeros until you convert it to something that benefits your life, right? Into assets, into land, into family vacation, whatever's important to you until, but always have it like, okay, maybe there's a particular price target or you can learn about the market. Let me just show you some things. There's these little signals called technical analysis. As you can see here, this is what's called a double top. And oftentimes when there's a double top, it means the price is going to go down. So boom, the price topped out here, went down, boom, there's the double top. Oh, then it went down considerably. When you flip that around, it looks like a W. It's called a double bottom. That means the price is going to go up. But there's one great mechanism that I like a whole lot to determine prices or when a good time to buy is. And it's called ceiling and support. So I'm just going to show you this real quick because it's a great uh, indicator of prices or when it's a good time to buy. Okay, so ceiling, so re resistance is the ceiling and it's when prices go up and they start testing new highs, but then they come back down. Prices have a tendency to bounce between ceiling, resistance, or the floor, support. Okay, so prices have a tendency to bounce up and down. And this happens naturally, but then there's investors and traders that spot these mechanisms. So it turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. So as you can see, let me find a good period to show you. Let's pull back a little. Thanks for bearing with me if you're in the podcast audience. Okay, so from this period between November 21st, 2020 and December 16th, approximately a month, you can see that the price never really broke out above 19,480, right? So that's the ceiling, that's resistance. On the flip side, the price was bouncing around around this area right here between 16,275. So you can see the price bounced around, bounced around. Let me tell you a good signal on when to buy, right? It's called a breakout. So as you can see, the price was popping up, hitting this resistance and then going back down. If you're in the podcast audience, again, I invite you to check this out on your own on CoinGecko, but just imagine the line going up and trying to punch through the ceiling and then it goes back down. But as you can see, when it finally did punch through with a lot of volume, this little indicator down here is the volume, the amount of dollars or amount of fiat going into Bitcoin at this time. It punched through resistance. That's a good signal if you're a trader 
that the price is about to go up potentially more than likely going to go up. And then there you see it shot up and this began this huge bull run that is still going on to this day. So I just like to point out that stuff. I did a video before. This is the kind of stuff I can talk to you to if you do a one-on-one -on -one consultation with me. We'll break all this stuff down. But uh, as you can see, the price is continuing to skyrocket and continuing to go up. Look at that. That was that little window down there. Now look how high it is. Another way to check out price is you draw a line, trend line. You can create a channel and you can see this is where the price is heading. It's absolutely ridiculous. The price of crypto is going way up. So for all the haters out there, the marketplace doesn't lie. And so John Bush can think this or that of Bitcoin. The haters can think that or this Bitcoin, but the market is indicating showing that Bitcoin has immense value in the marketplace. So let's just recap real quick before I let you go. Prices are subjective. Value is subjective. Other people believe differently, but I believe the most sound economic theory when it comes to how is the value of something determined is the subjective theory of value, right? The labor theory of value or the cost theory of value leaves much to be desired. When two individuals come together, a seller and a buyer, they must agree on a price in order for a transaction to take place. When a bunch of buyers and sellers come together, like we see in the Bitcoin trade, they all tend to agree on a similar price, right? Because if they can get it here for this price, but it's being sold over there for that price, they're going to go to where they can find it for lower. And this struggle goes on between the bulls and the bears, the buyers and the sellers. Very beautiful thing. And so prices are subjective. It's all in the eye of the beholder, okay? And so Bitcoin, why does Bitcoin have value? Well, Bitcoin has value on the marketplace because it is a decentralized supercomputer that allows for trustless transactions to take place. You don't have to rely on a centralized third party in order to exchange value and trust that the person that says they're sending you money cryptocurrency, they have that cryptocurrency. They're not lying about it. We don't have to rely on a third party. In a modern world where many people are losing faith in, faith in centralized institutions like banks, corporations, and governments, many people are finding value in cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency has had a slowly growth and gain in value as there's more exposure, as more people become aware of it, as it's adopted more and used more. More recently, in 2017, 2018, Bitcoin's price shot up to like, 20,000. Let's look at it here on the chart. We can look in terms of weeks. That gives us a nice big view here. So here we have December 2017, the price shot up to, I'm sorry, about 19,000. This was retail investors that were driving that price. Retail investors being little guys that want to put in 5,000 here, 10,000 here, maybe even 100,000, big money, right? That drove up the price. The price quickly came crashing down. Uh, there was a lot of hype, if you remember, on the media, CNBC, Fox Business. All of a sudden, everyone's talking about it, right? Meanwhile, I've been telling people to get involved since 2013, 2014, encouraging them to get to the left of the decimal point, meaning to get a whole Bitcoin, because sooner than later, it's going to be very difficult to get that whole Bitcoin, is what I would tell people, right? 2013, 2014, 2015, nobody was really taking my advice until they started seeing it on TV. For some reason, that's an indicator that's all good and kosher, but then you miss out on a lot of opportunity when you do that, right? You got to be ahead of the curve. The price went back down. That was mainly retail investors, a lot of speculation, a lot of people aiming to make money. Well, the paradigm has changed now. Same paradigm, essentially, in that governments have been substantially inflating currency for quite some time. But that has accelerated and people are becoming more and more aware of that. And so what's driving the price action now, the price from $12,000 all the way up to just over $60,000 just recently, 
is that now institutional investors, legacy financial institutions are investing hundreds of millions, hundreds of billions of dollars into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, predominantly Bitcoin and a little bit of Ethereum. And they're doing that because they are concerned that the money they have, the money that they've earned through their businesses, through their investments, is losing value because the United States government, the Department of Treasury, and the Federal Reserve Bank are inflating the currency at a very rapid rate, causing the value of the dollar to go down in relation to other assets. Now we see all sorts of Bubbles taking place, and we see a dramatic increase in the price of things like silver, gold, stocks. Although when you're doing the stock market, that's all based on U.S. dollars as well. And we see Bitcoin, a decentralized cryptocurrency that has a fixed supply. There will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. Many people see immense value in that because they see the value of the dollar going down, and that is what's responsible for the price going up. I personally think Bitcoin has value because of this trustless, decentralized nature. I'm a decentralist. I like to see freedom take place. It's a very beautiful thing, and I think the future is very optimistic. So there's a lot of people that are going to hate on cryptocurrency. There's a lot of people that are going to be like, it's all part of this New World Order agenda. I think that those folks lack foresight and a true understanding of what decentralization and cryptocurrency has to offer the world. So if you want to learn more about cryptocurrency, if you want to get onboarded, if you want me to help you set up a wallet in a safe and secure manner so it can't be hacked, but more importantly, so you can't screw it up yourself, that's how most people lose crypto is from user error. I'd be happy to help you out. You can book a one to two hour consultation at SovBTC.com, SovBTC.com. And before I let you go, I want to invite you to participate in what's coming up. We are putting together another Greater Reset event. If you remember, we did the Greater Reset, a response to the World Economic Forum's Great Reset that took place at the end of January. Well, coming up pretty soon here, we're going to do what's called the Decentralized Distributed and Disruptive Tech Summit. That's taking place on April 10th and April 11th. We're also going to be doing the Greater Reset Activation Part 2, a week-long event that's going to be taking place at the end of May. But the Decentralized Distributed and Decentralized Decentralized Distributed and Disruptive Tech Summit will have a lot to do with cryptocurrency, decentralized technologies. We're going to be bringing it to you. We're going to talk about overcoming the obstacles to private acquisition and transfer of cryptocurrency, privacy and censorship considerations on social media networks, decentralized finance, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. That's all going to be taking place April 10th and 11th. So I invite you to head over to the Greater Reset website, thegreaterreset.org. If you haven't signed up yet with your email, please keep in touch with us. We have over 50,000 people that have joined the newsletter. Over 150,000 people went through our website when we did the first Greater Reset. It was a huge deal. We're going to be bringing you some very impactful and powerful speakers, and we'd love for you to come participate. You can also join our Telegram channel. Follow us on Float and Odyssey to stay in touch. All right, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you to the audience that tuned in live on YouTube, Facebook, especially let's shout out the folks that are watching over there on float at the conscious resistance float channel also the folks that are watching on conscious resistance d live thank you so much for using those alternative channels this is john bush the live free now show bringing you the news views tips and tools you can use live a free prosperous and healthy life until next time peace and freedom i love you i'm out thanks